Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello, listeners. I'm taking some time off for maternity leave, but I didn't want to leave you with a hole in your podcast listening routine. So today, I'm sharing an excerpt from Wired for Love, a brand new book from neuroscientist Stephanie Cacioppo. Cacioppo is one of the world's foremost neuroscientists studying romantic love. In Wired for Love, she tells the story of how she met the foremost scientist of loneliness, how they fell in love, and the tragic story of his death seven years later. Woven into her personal story are revelatory insights into how and why we fall in love, what makes love last, and how we process love lost, all grounded in cutting-edge findings in brain chemistry and behavioral science. If you love what you hear today, you can find Wired for Love at your local bookstore, Amazon, or wherever you buy your books. Introduction You can't blame gravity for falling in love. Albert Einstein Paul Dirac was nobody's idea of Prince Charming. But he was a genius. In fact, after Einstein, Dirac was perhaps the most brilliant theoretical physicist of the 20th century. He pioneered the field of quantum mechanics. He correctly predicted the existence of antimatter. In 1933, he won a Nobel Prize when he was just 31 years old. Yet, in terms of his personal life, the physicist was the social equivalent of a black hole. Colleagues described him as almost pathologically reticent, and jokingly invented a unit called the Dirac to measure his rate of conversation, one word per hour. At the University of Bristol, and then in graduate school in Cambridge, Dirac formed no close friendships, to say nothing of romantic relationships. He cared only for his work and was amazed that other physicists spent precious time reading poetry, which he thought was incompatible with science. Once, attending a dance with his fellow physicist Werner Heisenberg, Dirac looked out on a sea of swaying bodies and couldn't understand the point of this strange ritual. Why do you dance? Dirac asked his colleague. When there are nice girls, it is a pleasure to dance, he replied. Dirac reflected on this answer for a long time, then posed another question. Heisenberg, how do you know beforehand that the girls are nice? In 1934, Dirac was introduced to a middle-aged Hungarian woman named Margit Vigna. Everyone called her Monsi. She was his opposite in many ways, scientifically illiterate, extroverted, fun. But she took a strange interest in this aloof physicist. She detected a capacity in him that he did not see in himself. She wrote him love letters. He responded with shrugs, correcting her English and criticizing her appearance. She said he deserved a second Nobel Prize in cruelty. Yet she did not give up on him. She convinced him to spend time with her, to share his dreams, 
to confess his fears, he began, by degrees, to soften. When they parted after one long visit, he was astonished by an entirely new sensation. I miss you, he said. I do not understand why this should be, as I do not usually miss people when I leave them. Dirac and Mansi would eventually marry and spend a half century happily in love. In one of his letters, Dirac told his wife that she had taught him something that, for all his genius, he never could have figured out on his own. Mansi, my darling, you have made a wonderful alteration in my life. You have made me human. All the single people. Dirac's story illustrates how the power of love helps us realize our innate human potential. Understanding that power, why it evolved, how it functions, how it can be harnessed to strengthen our bodies and open our minds, is the subject of this book. It is a subject that has only gotten more complex in recent years. We live in a time when the environment needed to sustain love is being stressed in new ways. Marriage rates have plunged to historic lows. Half of adults in the United States are now single, compared to 22% in 1950. And while all these single people aren't necessarily lonely, as we'll learn, there's an important difference between being alone and loneliness. Those who are single not by choice but by circumstance are more likely to feel lonely. This includes many single parents. According to a nationally representative survey carried out in 2020, single-parent households report higher levels of loneliness than other households. And a 2018 survey from Scotland showed that one in three single parents felt lonely frequently, while one in two reported feeling lonely some of the time. Loneliness has, in fact, become so pervasive and so damaging that many public health experts describe it now as a full-blown epidemic, one that touches not only single people, but also unhappy couples. Maybe this yearning for human connection explains why online dating has been growing at an explosive rate. Between 2015 and 2020, dating app revenues jumped from $1.69 billion to $3.08 billion and are projected to nearly double again by 2025. And according to an online survey conducted in the last quarter of 2020, nearly 39% of single, widowed, or divorced internet users say they used an online dating service in the previous month. Yet, despite the sophisticated new algorithms designed to deliver the perfect partner and some encouraging data about the success of long-term relationships formed online, many people report that dating has gotten more difficult in the last decade. While some of us find love... Others keep swiping, looking for that special someone, feeling like the perfect match is within reach but not knowing how to connect. Are we holding love to a higher standard than we once did? Is there something about digital age dating that's fundamentally different from meeting someone in real life? Does the dating pool seem shallow to you? Or, on the flip side, are there just too many fish in the sea? The more you trawl, the more you worry that something is wrong with your net. While the common view is the more choice, the better, 
Research has challenged this idea by showing that people prefer a limited range of choices, often between 8 to 15, over a more extensive array of options. Beyond 15 options, people start to feel overwhelmed. Psychologists call this problem choice overload. I prefer the term FOBO, fear of a better option. Whatever you call it, it's exhausting. So much so that, for many single people on the dating market, the arrival of the COVID-19 pandemic gave them the excuse they were waiting for to close up shop and retreat into the safety of celibacy. As the pandemic started to ease, some single people actually started to experience FODA, the fear of dating again. Maybe they had been traumatized by the alienation caused by commodifying their self-worth and packaging it for consumption in a digital marketplace. Maybe they were ghosted one too many times. Maybe they were tired of looking for love and coming up short. Of course, that wasn't everyone's story. While some people put their romantic plans on pause during the pandemic, the use of dating apps overall actually went up as people sought connections online. And while many people were reluctant to date again after emerging from lockdown, other singles felt a jolt of energy, hoping to finally find the one by entirely changing their dating MO. Some turned to typecasting, only meeting prospective mates who checked all the boxes. Others to apocalypsing, treating your next relationship like it's your last. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The pandemic wasn't only an enormous test for single people battling the effects of social isolation, but also for those in relationships who spent more time together than ever before. As happened during other global crises, the Great Depression, World War II, marriage rates fell, crashing through pre-pandemic lows. With their plans on hold, couples slowed down and got to know each other better, for better or worse. A Cambridge doctoral student in mathematics calculated that the average relationship aged by four years during lockdown. Some people wanted out. Cultural commentators speculated that relationships on the rocks would not survive the stress of lockdown, and there were reports in the press about divorce lawyers being inundated with calls. But according to a survey conducted a few months into the pandemic, half of American couples said the experience of confinement actually made their relationship stronger. Only 1% said they were worse off as a couple. While the pandemic showed how resilient our relationships can be, there are still many challenges now facing couples. For all its social benefits, the rise of digital technology can be a mixed blessing for relationships. It all depends on how you use it. 
On the one hand, it can help people stay connected, even when there's physical distance between them. On the other hand, the devices we carry around to connect with others can sometimes prevent us from connecting with our partner, even when they're in the same room with us. Two-thirds of people aged 30 to 49 say their partner is sometimes distracted by their phone when they're trying to talk to them. 34% of people between the ages of 18 to 29 who are in relationships say that their partner's social media use has made them feel jealous or unsure about their relationship. Adding to these new challenges are all the classic headwinds facing couples, like power struggles, lack of loving feelings, lack of communication, and unrealistic expectations, which, according to relationship therapists, are among the top reasons why couples split up. All these challenges have driven many people to the brink of giving up on love altogether. A stunning half of single American adults and a majority of single women now say they are not even on the dating market, according to Pew Research. Across the globe, according to research from the United Nations, single living is on the rise and people are struggling to find suitable partners. Japan is a particularly stark case. About half the people there who want to marry say they can't find a spouse. Many of these relationship trends seem to hit millennials the hardest. In America, 61% of them are currently living without a spouse or a partner. And while millennials may be struggling to find love, some of the youngest people who could be in the dating pool are actively avoiding it. A clinical psychologist who teaches a popular course at Northwestern University called Marriage 101 told The Atlantic that many of her students were steering clear of romance altogether. Over and over, my undergraduates tell me they try hard not to fall in love during college, imagining that it would mess up their plans. This thing called love. I am not only a neuroscientist of love, but also a hopeless romantic. And I am here to make the case that in this time of social flux, when more of us are choosing to live alone and are tempted to turn away from romantic relationships, we should take heart. The world is changing, yes, but love will change with it. Love will evolve. This is one of love's best features, its adaptability. Yet while love is endlessly customizable, we must remember that it is never expendable. Love is not optional. It is not something we can do without. Love is a biological necessity. My scientific research on the brain has convinced me that a healthy love life is as necessary to a person's well-being as nutritious food, exercise, or clean water. Evolution has sculpted our brains and bodies specifically to build and benefit from lasting romantic connections. When those connections are frayed or ruptured, the consequences to our mental and physical health are devastating. My research has revealed that not only are we wired for love, but that, like Dirac, we cannot realize our full potential as human beings without it. Whatever the future of our social life will look like, love must be the foundation and cornerstone. 
While I discovered this in the laboratory by spending hundreds of hours scanning and analyzing the brains of those in love, as well as the heartbroken, I did not fully understand the importance and true beauty of love until I found, lost, and rediscovered it in my own life. In this book, I hope we can unlock the mysteries of love together. But before we begin, we have to determine what it is we are actually talking about when we say that four-letter word. Although I will discuss other types of love in this book, maternal love, unconditional love, the love we feel for friends, pets, work, sports, our purpose in life, I am chiefly interested in romantic love, the kind of invisible bond that binds two human beings tightly together by choice alone. The kind that makes your heart go bumpity-bump. The kind that launches a thousand ships, builds families, breaks hearts, quite literally, as we'll discover. My discipline, which is social neuroscience, takes a holistic view of love. By looking deep into the brains of people in love, we discover that this complex neurobiological phenomenon activates not just the brain's mammalian pleasure centers, but also our cognitive system, the most evolved intellectual parts of the brain that we use to acquire knowledge and make sense of the world around us. Yet people rarely look to neuroscience to help them understand something as majestic, as mysterious, as profound as love. More often, we turn to poets. For the length of a line of verse, someone like Elizabeth Barrett Browning can grab hold of that ineffable feeling called love. Let her count the ways. I love thee with the breath, smiles, tears of all my life. Maya Angelou elegantly describes all of us searching for love as exiles from delight, people coiled in shells of loneliness, waiting for love to liberate us into life. But when it comes to defining love, poets can be, well, poetic. Take the French poet and novelist Victor Hugo, for example. Instead of answering the question, what is love, he just dodges it with literary razzle-dazzle. I have met in the streets a very poor young man who was in love. His hat was old, his coat worn, the water passed through his shoes and the stars through his soul. Or how about this plum from James Joyce's Ulysses? Love loves to love love. As sentences, these are intriguing. As definitions, they are, at best, incomplete. Scientists must be precise, almost surgical in our approach. To study love, we must dissect it. We must determine not only what love is, but what it is not. Is it an emotion or a cognition? Is it a primal urge or a social construct? Is it a natural high or a dangerous drug? Sometimes, as we'll discover, the answer is both. Sometimes it's neither. When hard and fast determinations are impossible, good scientists just continue to peel the onion. A scientist must not only define her terms, but she must also establish boundary conditions, circumstances under which her definition of love no longer applies. Is love still love if it's not mutually felt?
Is love still love in the absence of lust? Can you truly be in love with two people at one time? Once we have clear boundaries for determining a solid definition of what love is, we can begin to investigate how this thing really operates and even test whether some of the oldest saws about love have any scientific validity. Is love really blind? Can you fall in love at first sight? Is it actually better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? By putting love under the microscope, we begin to generate, and answer, new questions that we would never have even thought to ask. Why do people in love feel less pain? Why do they bounce back more easily from disease? Why are they more creative at certain tasks? Why are they better able to read body language or anticipate the actions of other people? But just as we can evaluate the benefits of love, we can also examine the risks and dangers it poses. Why do people fall out of love? Why does it hurt so much to lose love? How can you fix a broken heart? In this book, using my own research and that of my peers in disciplines from sociology to anthropology to economics, I will share with you what modern science has to say about one of the oldest facets of humanity. I will examine matters of the heart by looking deep into the brain. I will also offer a few case histories, drawn from my patients, my family, couples I've encountered, people who illustrate some powerful features of how love works. But the primary case study in this book is my own. Sharing that story, to some extent, goes against my nature. I am a shy and private person. Some of the things I've written down in this book will probably come as news even to my closest friends. For a long time, my only true love was science, and I assumed I would never experience romance outside the laboratory. Like Dirac, I found love unexpectedly. At first I was confused by it, but then I could not live without it. When I was 37, in a flash of serendipity, I met the great love of my life. We dated across an ocean, got married in Paris, and like two lovebirds, became absolutely inseparable. We traveled together, we worked together, we ran together, we even shoe-shopped together. If you put our seven years of marriage on the time clock of normal couples, who typically spend about six waking hours per day together, our union felt like the equivalent of 21 years. We loved every minute of it. We didn't feel time go by. We were too happy together. Until the clock stopped. I used to see love only through the lens of science, but my husband taught me to see it through the lens of humanity as well. And once I did, my life and my research were changed forever. So in this book, I have tried to tell both the story of my science and the science behind my story in the hope that it will help you not only appreciate the nature of human connection, but also give you some inspiration for how to find and sustain love in your own life. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.